I want to begin by um, reading quite a long section from um, uh, this book, Virtue Reborn, by Tom Wright. Thursday the 15th of January 2009 was another ordinary day in New York City, or so it seemed. But by that evening we were talking of a miracle. They may have been right, but the full explanation is, if anything, even more interesting and exciting. And it strikes just the note we need as we launch into this book. Flight 1549, a regular US Airways trip from LaGuardia Airport, took off at 15.26 local time bound for Charlotte, North Carolina. Captain Chelsea Sullenberger III, known as Sully, did all the usual checks. Everything was fine in the Airbus A320. Fine until two minutes after takeoff, the aircraft ran straight into a flock of Canada geese. One goose in a jet engine would be serious. A flock was disastrous. Almost at once, both the engines were severely damaged and lost their power. The plane was at that point heading north over the Bronx, one of the most densely populated parts of the city. Captain Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to make several major decisions instantly if they were going to save the lives of people, not only on board but also on the ground. They could see one or two small local airports in the distance, but quickly realised they couldn't make it that far. If they attempted it, they might well crash land in a built-up area. Likewise, the option of putting the plane down on the New Jersey Turnpike, a busy main road leading in and out of the city, would present huge problems and dangers for the plane and its occupant, let alone for the cars and their drivers on the road. That left one option, the Hudson River. It's difficult to crash land on water. One small mistake, catch the nose or one of the wings in the river, say, and the plane will turn over like a gymnast before breaking up and sinking. In the two or three minutes they had before landing, Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to do the following vital things. They had to shut down the engines, they had to set the right speed so that the plane would glide as long as possible without power, They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. They had to activate the ditch system, which seals vents and valves to make the plane as waterproof as possible once it hits the water. Most important of all, they had to fly and then glide the plane in a a fast left-hand turn so that it could come down facing south, going with the flow of the river. And having already turned off the engines, they had to do this using only the battery-operated systems and the emergency generator. Then they had to straighten the plane up from the tilt of the sharp left turn so that on landing the plane would be exactly level from side to side. And finally they had to get the nose back up again, but not too far up, and land straight and flat on the water. And they did it. They got off safely. Captain Solenberg himself, walking up and down the aisle a couple of times to check that everyone had escaped before leaving. Once in the life raft, along with the other passengers, he went one better, took off his shirt in the freezing January afternoon and gave it to a passenger who was suffering in the cold. The story has already been told and retold and will live on in the memory not only of those involved but of every New Yorker and many further afield. Just over seven years and four months after the horrible devastation of September the 11th, 2001, New York had an airplane story to celebrate. Now, as I say, many people describe the dramatic events as a miracle. And at one level, I wouldn't want to question that. But the really fascinating thing about the whole business is the way it spectacularly illustrates a vital truth 
a truth which many today have either forgotten or never known in the first place. You could call it the power of right habits. You might say it was the result of many years of training and experience. You could call it character. This is what the ancient writers meant when they spoke of virtue. What Tom Wright goes on uh, to do is to um, uh, describe how Sully Sullenberger gained such a set of skills that he could, uh, he could land that um, uh, plane almost by reflex. It starts with decisions made. Decisions to train, decisions to practice, doing the thing a thousand times. It, it develops on, he said, to habit. That is that you start doing those things without really thinking about it. And those habits, he says, develop over time into character, into a set of inbuilt reflexes that have become deeply part of who we are. We have gained character. We have gained what the ancient philosophers called virtue. Tom Wright, in that book, wants to rehabilitate a Greek philosopher of the 4th century BC, Aristotle, and apply what he taught to Christian, uh, a Christian understanding of how we change. And interestingly, the Apostle Paul would have known all about Aristotle and his teaching. He lived in that world. Aristotle was a dominant force. But actually, this passage is going to say to us that Aristotle got it deeply uh, wrong in understanding human beings. He's going to say that the idea of developing good habits, though it may work for certain things, um, in certain ways, and certainly had helped Sully Sullenberger to train to fly a plane. The problem is that it doesn't work at the deepest level in our hearts. Because our problem is that we, of ourselves, by our nature, at the deepest level, don't develop good habits. We develop bad ones. And of ourselves, over time, those bad habits become hardened into bad character. That's what he's going to, to, to say to us. It's a really, really important observation about human nature and then we will see what he says and then we will try to apply it to ourselves. You see, what Paul is talking about specifically is not Sullenberger's habits. He is talking about the Old Testament law but it is very similar. The law told people what to do. It gave them a set of regulations. It was expected that an average Israelite should obey and habitually obey the law and over time the, the, the hope was that they would develop a good character. But Paul has started to say, if you've been here some pretty, in previous weeks, some pretty negative things about law. 
For instance, in chapter 6, verse 14, when, remember, he started his discussion of how Christians become good, how Christians overcome sin, he ended it, sin shall no longer be your master. That is a great promise that Christians have, that God transforms us in such a way that we are no longer ruled by sin in our life. But notice that, what he says afterwards, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Habits of obedience is not what rules you. God's grace rules you, he said. And then he said something um, not that dissimilar, just the verse before the beginning of our passage, 7 verse 6. Now, by dying to what's once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we now um, live in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. So he's a couple of times, at least, started to say that law, that is being told what to do, developing habits of obedience that we hope will, in one, at one point, uh, 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 over time, develop deep godly character that does not work that is not what he's talking about when he talks about how Christians grow and overcome sin no it's about grace not law 6.14 it's about the spirit not law 7.6 so understandably um, particularly the Jews in his congregation but in every age people who are who are committed to rules They get a bit jumpy at this point in his argument. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? That's that's, That's the accusation. So Paul, you're saying that rules do us no good at all. Does that mean rules are bad? Rules are sinful? No, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. It were, I, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. In other words, he's saying, he, he's saying law is not intrinsically bad, it's good in various ways. It tells you what to do. I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. It penetrates, he says, deeply into our hearts. He picks on the last of the Ten Commandments, very interestingly there. I would not have known what coveting was, it really was, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And here, we're we're digging into the heart of what he wants to say. Law, perhaps, can produce a sort of superficial veneer of goodness. Law and rules, perhaps, can train you even to fly a plane well. But law and rules will not transform your heart. And that last and most penetrating of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet, exposes that. Now the law is not bad, it is good, but there's an ironic thing that the law achieves. I would not have known what the coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. In other words, there's, there's a principle in the human heart. A principle that actually, on our own, we can't break free of, that he calls here sin. That, that 
Ironically, when you get an instruction, this principle deep in our hearts starts to rebel. And indeed it stirs up the rebellion. It created in me every kind of coveting. He says, sin, as he puts it, sprang to life. Once I was alive, apart from the law, perhaps, you know, in relative innocence, he didn't know what was what. But when the commandment came, far from making me good, sin sprang to life, and I died. So he says, verse 10, the, the, the law, though it is good, indirectly brought death. Verse, verse 11, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, through the commandment put me to death. Notice that sin deceives us. That, that is, that, that our hearts are deceitful. I remember that so vividly before I was a Christian. I remember um, I, was, I was only 20, but I had already got um, uh, built up a good set of self-justifications about how I was going to live my life. I remember, for instance, being very pro-abortion. I only realised really some time later but frankly I'd been pro-abortion because I wanted my own sexual liberty. And I didn't want to have a difficult consequence catching up with me. The human heart does that. Deceives us. We don't realise what, what um, hidden um, drives there are deep in our hearts. And we produce a superficial justification over it. Sin deceived me. And it brought death. Verse 13. This irony he brings out again and again and again. Did that which is good, the law, then become death to me? No, by no means. It wasn't the law itself that became death to me. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become Utterly sinful. Here's a fascinating thing that law does. Set out the rules of how you should behave. And you see for the first time quite how bad your heart is. That's a blessing in one sense. But it is not the complete answer. Because we can't do anything about it. Sin becomes utterly sinful when it meets the law. So that's what the Apostle is saying. And we, we, we need to reflect on that uh, a little bit then. Uh, first of all, it might be worth just reflecting for a few minutes how our wider world thinks about these things. It is absolutely axiomatic to... Um, much of the wider world that we are free to choose. We're not confined and bound by these rules, that, that, by, 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 the, by these inner drives that we cannot break free from. They are with Aristotle in that. But then, our society again and again starts to realise that people are not at a practical level. What they do with that 
is that they start to redefine what it means to be good. Sometimes in some, some things such as the issue of homosexuality, they move our sexual urges from the realm of choice to the realm of necessity and identity. Because they know we can't break free, just as the Apostle says. But they want to hang on to this idea that we should be free to choose things. There are ironies then going on in, uh, uh, in our society and the Apostle Paul cuts straight through it and he says, no, you will not be good simply by obeying laws. And that is really, really important to us when we think um, how we grow as Christians. What is the solution then for us who are locked into this? Romans explains two solutions which are vitally important, both of them. The first one, we've already looked at at some length, but I need to remind you of it here, in Romans 1 to 4, it is precisely this being locked into sin that necessitates Jesus coming to die for our sins so that we can be forgiven. We are set free in that sense because we do not need to face God with all of those sins to our account. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and as we put our faith in Jesus, we are um, uh, made righteous, as Romans 1 4 to 4 says. We are right with God. But Romans 5 to 8 is in the process of, de- of, of describing a second solution which is equally important. How do we change? How does that promise, sin shall not be your master, get applied to us? And um, we've seen that Paul has already used different pictures to try to illustrate it. But now he's approaching the core thing that he wants to say. Um, uh, We'll learn about it over the next few weeks, but I cannot finish here without explaining it briefly. He says we change through the Holy Spirit changing our hearts right at its core. Law cannot get to the heart of who we are. Covetousness shows us that. But the Holy Spirit does penetrate to the depths of our hearts. Paul anticipated that in Romans 5.5 when he said God has poured out his love into our hearts by his Spirit. And he will explain it in more length in Romans 8. If you think with Aristotle and so many other people that you simply buy decisions which become habits, which become character, that you can be virtuous. You will fail, says the Bible. You will become either a hypocrite, a self-righteous hypocrite, or a totally depressed um, moral failure. But if the Holy Spirit works in you, and if you work keep in step with the Spirit, 
And so cultivate that love and delight in God. God's Spirit gives you a desire for Him which is deeper than your desire to sin. And you break free. That's what Paul's going to tell us over a few weeks and it is so, so important. It affects that how we grow, how we see ourselves growing. Our Friday group was meeting and uh, looking at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul said, Paul says he prays for them that they would have wisdom and insight so that they would know God better. Why? Because to know God better is to love God. And to love God is to find that we can defeat sin. Sin shall not be under uh, your master because you're not under law, but grace. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. That is how you grow. Actually, um, Captain Sully Sullenberger's also after he landed his plane so successfully, wrote, uh, or probably had ghost written for him, an autobiography. It's a very interesting alternative take on how Tom Wright describes him. Because he describes himself as a little boy looking up at the planes flying over and falling in love with them. He describes himself as a teenager developing an ambition and a desire to fly planes more than anything else in his life. He describes himself as a young adult then, loving and adoring his planes. So that he, he, he kept on learning and practicing, not because of some dry set of rules that he was following, but because of a deep delight in flying. So he himself described his mature character that could fly that plane in disaster, not as the culmination of Aristotle's virtue, but as the end point of a love affair with planes. And you will become the person you long to be as you fall in love with Jesus. It is that love affair that will enable you to make good choice after good choice after good choice. And that will build into you a truly godly nature. And it will not happen through law. It happens through love created by the Spirit of Christ in you.